0: 29, and with guns, Mr. S leveled his gun to shoot her, the animal seemed at once to understand what would probably take place, and appealingly held out in each hand a baby baboon, his friend said, don't shoot, no, I was not going to, said Mr. S so Mrs. Baboon and her family escaped and hurt, the mother showing, it will be agreed, something greater than ordinary instinct, something greater, yes, love, the greatest of all instincts higher than reason itself. It is when filled with love for her defenseless babe that the animal mother learns, by many a wonderful makeshift, to appeal to our pity, and forgets herself for its sake. A beautiful instance of this was lately given in the daily news. A laborer, going along a lane, met a little robin redbreast. She flew boldly within reach of his hand, almost dashing against his face, and as he passed on tried to hinder him, uttering all the while piercing cries. At last he stopped at a hole to which she kept flying, and found a rat in the act of carrying off one of her nestlings, the laborer was able to kill the enemy by a blow of his stick as it darted across the lane, and the small mother, after hovering with a different and triumphant note over the poor little dead bird, went gladly home, in countries where snakes abound, the shriek of a bird whose nest is threatened serves as a signal to its wing neighbors, who throng to the spot and drive away, or often kill. The enemy. Sometimes the ways in which creatures communicate are altogether mysterious. An old goose, who had spent a fortnight hatching eggs in a farmer's kitchen, was suddenly taken ill. She left her nest, waddled to a neighboring outhouse, and persuaded a young goose to go back with her. The young one instantly scrambled into the vacant nest, and hatched and afterwards brought up the brood. The old goose sat down by the side of the nest to die, as the young goose had never reared a brood before. Nor been inside the kitchen. The elder must somehow have explained the duties to her, and the younger have understood and accepted the charge. It seems, then, that want of understanding on our part, rather than stupidity on theirs, prevents a closer understanding between ourselves and the animal creation. Though we are not able to bridge over the gulf separating speechless animals and men, we may at least take care that the dumb prayers of the lower brethren never fall on willfully deaf ears, or on unkind hearts. Of Carrington, afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 269, Chapter X. The result of Mister Page's generosity was that when Fred and Charlie went to a tailor's, King Wong ordered a Chinese costume. A week later, it was sent home, and when King Wong put it on and permitted his pigtail to hang down, he looked quite a different man. That day the family were sitting talking over the coming voyage when a maid came in a man wants to see you, sir, she said to Mr. Page, he says his name is Skipper Drummond, what a lark, Charlie exclaimed to Ping Wong, shall we carry him down the garden, and pitch him in the duck pond, Show Skipper Drummond in Mr. Page said to the maid, and as she departed he continued, now, you boys and Ping Wong, go into the conservatory, and wait there until I call you, Fred. Charlie, and Ping Wong stepped into the conservatory, and seated themselves on a rustic bench, so that they could hear what the skipper said without being seen by him. Skipper Drummond, Sir, the maid said, as she reopened the door, the bullying little skipper had evidently made a strong effort to look respectable. He was attired in a shiny black frock coat, and had it not been for his brightly colored tie, one would have imagined that he was going to a funeral. In one hand he held a tall hat, in the other he carried two stiff-looking black gloves. Good evening, sir, he said, as he stepped gingerly across the room, showing as much respect for the carpet as if it was newly sown grass. Take a seat, Mr. Page said, and he did so. I've come about the sparrowhawk, sir, he said, endeavouring to appear more comfortable than he felt. Yes, we've had a grand time, sir. Every voyage the sparrowhawk makes she improves. There is not a trawler in the North Sea catches more fish than the Sparrowhawk. She's a beauty, sir, and everyone in Grimsby and Helm knows it. Two of the big fleet owners want to buy her. I suppose that they did not offer so much for her as you are asking from me. They authored more, sir. Then why did you not accept one of the authors? Because it wouldn't have been acting square with you, sir. I am a straightforward man. I am, and having offered the Sparrowhawk to you at a certain price, I abide by my word, that is very good of you very good, indeed, it is not often that I meet with such an honorable businessman, Skepher Drummond sighed deeply, as if he was sincerely sorry for the fact that there were some men who were very dishonorable, my idea was, Mr. Page said, after a few moments silence, to purchase the Sparrowhawk for my son, and start him in business as a steam trawler owner, perhaps it would be well if I introduced you to him at once, I shall be proud to make the young gentleman's acquaintance, I am not a man to boast, sir, but if anyone can produce a man that knows more about North Sea fishing than I do, I'm a Dutchman, Charlie, Mr. Page called out loudly, and in walked from the conservatory Charlie, King Wong, and Fred, good evening, Skipper. Charlie exclaimed, cheerfully, good evening, Skipper. King Wong added, equally cheerfully, Skipper Drummond dropped his hat and gloves, and almost started out of his chair, evidently he had never expected to see either Charlie or Ping Wong again, have you brought us the clothes which we left on the sparrowhawk, Charlie inquired, and the pay which you owe me, Ping Wong added, I thought that you were both drowned, the Skipper gasped, and no doubt you are almost sorry that we were not, Charlie remarked, however, we have told my father what a wretched old tub the sparrow hawk is, we have told him that she is rotten, that her boilers are worn out, that her gear is not up to date, that she has the smallest catches of any Grimsby trawler, we have told him also that you have been keeping down expenses by half starving your men, and that you are the vilest little bully that ever held a captain's certificate, and they also told me, Mr. Page joined in that you confessed to one of your men that you were about to sell the sparrowhawk for half as much again as she was worth. Let me assure you that you will do nothing of the kind. I would not give half the sum which you asked for her. From the first I suspected that you were a swindler, and it was to obtain proof of it that my son shipped with you as a cook. Have you anything that you wish to say in your defense, or will you go at once? Skipper Drummond picked up his hat and gloves. And without uttering a word walked out of the room. He was white with rage, but he dared not express his anger in words such as he would have used on the sparrowhawk. For Charlie accompanied him to the hall door, and stood in the porch watching him until he had passed into the main road. We have seen the last of him, I think, said Charlie, when the captain was out of sight, and I hope that I never meet another man like him. On the following evening the pages had a much more welcome visitor in Lieutenant Williams who availed himself of Charlie's earnest invitation to come and see him and Ping Wan before they started for China. In private life he was just as cheery, amusing, and good-tempered as on board ship. He told many interesting stories of his work in copper catching and arrests for illegal fishing. He quite envied Fred, Charlie, and Ping Wan their trip to China. Perhaps you will be sent to South Africa, Charlie remarked. That would be much better than going with us. Certainly it would. Williams declared, active service is the best thing that a man in the Navy can desire, but I am afraid that there is no chance of my getting to South Africa. At any rate, I shall go on hoping for foreign service of some sort, if he has an opportunity. Fred declared, after Lieutenant Williams had departed, he will make the most of it, I am sure. He is just the kind of man to do something big, and then laugh and pretend that it was a very easy thing to do. I wish that he was coming with us however, it's no good wishing, I'm going to have a good long sleep for my last night in the old home, good night, all, Charlie and King One followed Fred's example and went to bed as quickly as possible, they awoke early, and later in the day reached Liverpool and went aboard the Twilight, which was to be their home for five or six weeks, the Twilight was a cargo boat which had accommodation for twenty saloon passengers, but she rarely carried that number, as. Her speed being but ten knots an hour, most people proceeding to China travelled by a faster and consequently more expensive steamer. Soon after she had left Liverpool, Fred, Charlie, and Ping began to wonder where the other passengers were. They can't possibly be seasick already, Charlie declared. And then, seeing the chief steward, he inquired how many passengers they had aboard. Only you three gentlemen, the steward answered. Fred and Charlie looked at each other in amazement, they had fully expected that there would be all sorts of amusements to break the monotony of their long voyage, and their disappointment was great, however, when they found that in consequence of their being the only passengers each might have a cabin to himself, their discontent quickly passed away, and when they got well out to sea they had plenty of amusements, for the captain had the shuffleboard, deck quoits, and other games brought out, and with the second officer and chief engineer played the passengers. When the three passengers wearied of deck games, they sat on the poop reading some of the books which they had borrowed from the ship's library. Fred sometimes brought out his medical books, but he obtained more practical than theoretical knowledge that voyage, for the ship's doctor a young fellow who had been recently qualified and was taking a sea voyage, and small pay in return for his medical services was completely prostrated by seasickness. And utterly useless as a doctor. Fred attended to him, doctored such of the crew as needed it, and successfully set a stoker's dislocated forefinger. Continued on page 285. Mice on a submarine. The sailors in our submarines have found out a simple device to protect their lives whilst on their undersea troops. Every submarine that goes to sea takes out a couple of mice. If one of these mice shows symptoms of distress, it is a sure sign that the time for coming to the surface has arrived and that the air of the closed box needs replenishing from the fresh air, ex the father of all, little flower, in meadow bright, with thy raiment sweet and white, knowest thou who set thee there, gave to thee a dress so fair, caused thee from the ground to spring, such a sweet and tender thing, sent the rain and sent the sun day sent the stars when day is done, little flower, dost thou not know it was God who made thee grow, gave to thee thy lovely dress, such as kings can ne'er possess, set thee in thy little bed, gave thee petals, white and red, sent for thee the dewdrop bright, shuts thy blossom up at night, little bird, high in the air, flying here and everywhere, dust thou know who made thy link. gave thee thy sweet song to sing, brought thee o'er the ocean track, guided thee in safety bath, caused thee with the spring to come to thy green and shady home, little bird, God made thy link. gave thee all thy songs to sing, set thee in the woods and trees, And thy nest with gentle breeze, he it was who brought thee home, safe across the ocean's foam, to the meadows green and bright, gave thee songs of sweet delight, advice that saved a king's life, a certain Khan of Targary, making a journey with his nobles, was met by a dervish, who cried with a loud voice, if anyone will give me a piece of gold I will give him a piece of advice, the Khan ordered the sum to be given him, upon which the dervish said begin nothing of which thou hast not well considered the end, the courtiers, upon hearing his plain sentence, smiled, and said with a sneer, the dervish is well paid for his maxim, but the kin was so well satisfied with the answer, that he ordered it to be written in golden letters in several places of his palace, and engraved on all his plate, not long after, the kin's surgeon was bribed to kill him with a poisoned lancet, one day, when the kin needed bleeding and the fatal lancet was ready, the surgeon read on the bowl which was close by, begin nothing of which thou hast not well considered the end, he started, and let the lancet fall out of his hand, the king observed his confusion, and inquired the reason, the surgeon fell prostrate, and confessed the whole affair, the Khan, turning to his courtiers, told them, that counsel could not be too much valued which had saved the life of your king, why life in Bohemia. Bohemia is a land of rugged mountains and towering pine forests, with other beauties of its own, not many years ago it was, to most English people, an unknown land, but in these days, when traveling is so easy and rapid, year by year an ever increasing number of our countrymen find their way to this beautiful country in search of health and pleasure, you have only to cross the strip of silver sea that rolls between our little island and sunny France or misty Holland, and you may then rush on. Born by the fastest of express trains over the level plains that greet you on landing on through the beautiful Rhineland and the quaint old towns of Bavaria till at length you find yourself in this land of enchantment here surrounded by the mighty forests and shut in by the mountains stands the town of Marienbad not very long ago it was a lonely village inhabited during the summer months by peasants tending their flocks and herds on the pasture of the tableland in winter it was almost deserted given over to the wild storms that swept the mountain slopes and to the wolves and bears that roamed through the forests, gradually the wonderful qualities of its mineral springs became known, and now a crowd of fashionable folk pour into it during the summer, and in every direction trees are being cut down to make way for villas, and buildings of all kinds, which are springing up like mushrooms, the peasant life of the people continues wonderfully simple and it is very amusing to watch this mixing of modern fashionable life with the primitive ways of the villagers. English boys and girls would, perhaps, not care to go for a ride in the bohemian wagons, as they are so fond of doing in hours during harvest time. These wagons are made of a few long, wide planks, nailed together so as to form a kind of huge through, and strengthened on the outside by cross pieces of wood. This is placed upon the framework with which the wheels are connected. And then roughly fastened to it. These clumsy vehicles are drawn over the rough mountain roads by teams of patient oxen. On fate days the cattle look very gay. For then they are decked out with ribbons of many colors. The women of Bohemia work very hard indeed. They help their husbands in all kinds of work. Among other occupations they act as bricklayers laborers. They run up and down the tall ladders with heavy loads of bricks or mortar. Chattering gaily all the while as if life were one long holiday. The houses are built in quite a different way from ours, first of all a complete skeleton house is set up, made of wood, and, when this is finished, the spaces between the wooden structure are filled in with bricks and mortar, before the roof is put on, a large green bush is hoisted up as far as the eaves, and they're tied to the scaffolding poles, this is supposed to drive away the pixies or wicked fairies, and no one would dare to put the roof on without the protection of the green bush. The women also do the work of journeyman bakers. The loaves are of the long kind, sometimes jokingly called half-yards of bread. These are carried on the backs of the women. They look very droll with their huge burdens, the loaves poking out in all directions above their shoulders, making a kind of background to their stooping figures. Most of the people who visit Bohemia in order to take the mineral waters are very stout. They drink them to make themselves thinner. And the difference in their appearance when they arrive and when they leave is very great. They have sometimes to take mud baths, and it is very amusing to watch them going and returning from these. It does not seem to be a very pleasant way of spending a fine summer morning, but they appear to enjoy it all the same. The bohemians are very fond of music, and they never fail to greet any newcomers of importance with a serenade on the evening of their arrival. How Tom dresses at home, a grimy face, a muddy boot a broken lace, and shabby suit, with threadbare knee, and dusty coat, and birdie collar around his throat, out visiting, now see, his face is all aglow, he's tied both laces in a bow, he's combed his hair, he's brushed his suit there's not a speck on either boot, his collar now is new and clean and either boy I've never seen, yet Tom should be, beyond a doubt, as clean at home as when he's out, for those who dress mid friends to roam, should dress as well for those at home, John Lee, ready, what is the use of fagging like that on a hot day, asked Harold Locke of his brother Frank, who came and flung himself panting on the grass beside him, I must keep in training, a fellow so soon gets slack and out of practice if he is lazy, was the answer, well, being lazy is good enough for me in the holidays, the elder boy said, I should think it pretty hard lines to have to run a mile in this Sunday it makes all the difference, Oh, if you are keen, Frank told him, I want to be the fastest runner in the school, and I don't want to go back and find I am easily beaten in the sports, I don't see the good of it myself, said Harold, rather scornfully, but Frank only laughed good temperedly and began to swing himself on a branch of the tree for change of exercise, if there was one thing he hated more than another, it was sitting still for too long a time. The same evening the boys were on the platform of the little village station, watching some trucks being shunted from the main line onto a siding. Suddenly there was a loud cry from one of the men engaged in the work as a heavy truck got off the rails, turned over, and dragged another with it. No one was seriously hurt, but the station master, who was soon on the scene of the accident, turned pale as he saw the obstruction on the line. Stop the down express! he shouted. But the signal box was a quarter of a mile away. And precious minutes would have passed before he could be near enough for his voice to reach the signal man. By that time it might be too late to stop the express. Then, like an arrow, a nimble little figure flew past him. It was Frank. His running powers put to some practical use at last. The station master followed as quickly as he could. But when at last he came up breathless, he found that Frank had already done his work and the signal was against the train. It's touch and go whether we have caught her, muttered the signal man, and they all held their breath as the rumble of the train was heard in the distance. She's slowing down, she's safe, gasped the station master, and he hurried down again, followed by Frank and the signal man, but it was only a few yards off the overturned trucks that the express was finally brought to a standstill. The few seconds gained by Frank's speed had saved her. Nothing could have prevented a terrible accident if the signal had not caused the train to slow down just in time. The passengers crowded round Frank, and thanked him warmly when they heard the story, and a few days later came a more practical expression of their gratitude in the shape of a handsome gold watch. So your running was some good after all, Harold said, and he no longer laughed at his small brother's hobby, but learned to admire the nimbleness of body which, with his ready wit, Made him of so much use in an emergency. M.H. insect ways and means. I.X. The ears and noses of insects. Most of us have a vague idea that what we call the ear is only partly concerned with the work of hearing, but only if you know exactly what a complicated organ the ear, as a whole, really is. The external ear only serves as an aid to the collection of sounds, and the real work of hearing is performed by a delicate organ inside the head. Seals. Moles. Whales and porpoises, birds, reptiles, and fishes have no visible ear, yet we know that they are not deaf, though in many the hearing must be dull, in all these creatures the sense of hearing lies inside the head, but the ears of insects must be looked for in strange places indeed, and, when found, they seem to bear no sort of likeness to what most of us call ears, they may be on the antennae, on the trunk, or on the legs, in the grasshopper, for example figure one, the ear is placed on the abdomen, just above the base of the great hind leg, so that this leg must be pulled down before the ear can be seen, when this has been done, there will be found an oval drum head like spot figures 2 and 3, this is the outer surface of the ear, if you had sufficient skill to take away this part of the body, so as to show the inside of this drum, you would find two horn like stalks, to each of which is fastened a small and very delicate flask, with a long neck. This is filled with a clear fluid, and corresponds to a similar structure within our own ears. In the green grasshoppers those delightful sprites of hot summer days ears of a precisely similar structure are found on the foreleg instead of on the body. In a little mat-like insect known as colrothra, common in England during the summer months, the ear takes the form of delicate hairs growing out from the body on a stem. Like the teeth of a comb, the base of what corresponds to the back of the comb is connected with a delicate nerve. And this, as in the case of the similar nerve in the grasshopper and locust, makes hearing possible, only in some ants and bees, and in some mosquitoes, is the organ of hearing placed on the head, we say on, rather than in the head, because it is formed by a modification of part of the antennae, a German naturalist, named Mayer, performed an experiment to prove that the hairs on these antennae can be made to vibrate by means of a tuning fork only those hairs which have to do with the production of sound answered to the notes of the tuning fork, and these vibrated at the rate of 512 vibrations per second, other hairs vibrated to other notes, which were those of the middle octave of the piano and the next above it, Mayer also found that certain of these vibrations corresponded with the notes produced by the song of the female mosquito, consequently, when she begins to sing, her tune, like the tuning fork, sets in motion those hairs on the antennae of the male which are tuned to these vibrations, having once found, by the movement of his antennae, much as a horse moves his ears, from which direction the sound is coming, the male is able to fly at once to his mate. From the accuracy of this flight, Professor Mayer believes that the perception of sound in these little creatures is more highly developed than in any other class of animals. In our illustration some of these curious ears are shown, figure 2 shows the ear of the grasshopper magnified. In figure 3 this is further magnified to show the V-shaped mark which represents the horny stalks to which we referred. Seen through the clear membrane of the drum, the dark border B around the drum represents a raised ridge. In figure 4 we have the antennae of a gnat, some of the hairs of which serve as sound conductors to delicate nerves lying at their base. The sense of smell in insects lies mainly in those wonderful organs, the antennae or horns. Scents of various kinds are perceived either through pits, or through pet or spike-like teeth filled with fluid. The leaf-like plates of the antennae of the cop for figure 5 have these pits very highly developed. On the outer surface of the first antennal leaf, as also on the edges of the other leaves, only scattered bristles are seen, but on the inner surface of the first and seventh leaves, and on both surfaces of all the other leaves, there are close rows of shallow, irregularly shaped hollows. Their number is enormous in the males as many as 39,000, and, in the female, 35,000 on each antenna. As some of the scent-laden air reaches the surface of these pits, it causes the nerves of smell to be roused, and so guides the beetle to its mate, or to its food. According to the nature of the smell, these pits are so tiny that they cannot be shown on the antennal leaves of the for shown in figure 5, but they are there. On figure 6 a highly magnified section of one of these leaves of the antenna is shown, P is the pit, N is the nerve, and SC the sense bulb of the nerve in which it terminates the point at which the smell is perceived. It has been proved that insects which have lost their antennae have no sense of smell. WPPYCRAFT. FZSALS afloat on the daughter bank. A -A 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 story of adventure on the North Sea and in China. Continued from page 279. Fourteen days after leaving Liverpool the twilight arrived at Port Said, and Fred, Charlie, and Ping Wang at once went ashore. The pages thoroughly enjoyed their first glimpse of the east, for Ping Wang, knowing the place, took care that they should see everything worth seeing. After sitting for a time in a big cafe which was crowded with men of almost every European nation, they wandered through the shop district, and out into the Arab portion of the town. After they had looked at the sights for some little time, Ping Wang suggested that they should have a donkey ride. They had noticed the large, handsome donkey soon after they landed, but as the passengers from a big P&O vessel had come ashore just before they arrived, all the animals were engaged, but when they returned to the busy part of the town they found three donkeys on hire, and the donkey boys, two of whom were elderly men, at once shouted out the names of their animals. A port said donkey sometimes has its name changed three or four times in a year, in consequence of its proprietor's desire that it shall always bear one which is just then popular with Englishmen. You may ride on W.G. Grace in June, and on returning to port said in December will discover that the same animal is now called Mr. Chamberlain, or Lord Charles Beresford, the donkeys which Fred, Charlie, and Ping one found on higher word named respectively Lord Roberts, General Bowler and Kruger. Charlie sprang onto Lord Roberts' back, Fred made a rush for General Bowler, and left King One to Mount Kruger. Let us have a race, Charlie suggested, when they were getting clear of the crowded narrow streets, and immediately all three urged on their donkeys, but, before they had gone many yards, Kruger began to leave his companions behind. This will never do, Charlie declared, and touched up Lord Roberts with his stick. Fred tried to hurry up General Buller, neither of the animals, however, appeared to be at all anxious to exert themselves, and they would have lost the race had not the donkey man, remembering that his English patrons always seemed pleased when Kruger was last, caught hold of Kruger's tail with both hands, and, throwing back his head, pulled as if he were engaged in a tug of war, Kruger, not liking this strain upon his tail, slackened speed and stopped. Lord Roberts and General Bowler, evidently fearing that if they continued running they would be treated in the same way as Kruger had been, stopped with such suddenness that Fred was shot over his animal's head into the road, and Charlie only just escaped a similar fate by throwing his arms round his Jenny's neck. This is a nice thing, Fred declared, ruefully, as he pointed to a big tear in his trousers. Today is the first time I have worn this suit, King Wong condoled with him, but Charlie, Who always maintained that his brother thought too much of dress, laughed at his mishap. If you had been wearing a serviceable suit like mine, he said, your trousers would not have been torn. May the day never come, Fred answered, solemnly, when I have to take your advice on the matter of dress. And now I think it is about time that we return to the twilight. Shall we have another race? Ping Wong asked eagerly, somewhat disappointed at having been robbed of his victory. I've had quite enough racing. Thank you, Fred declared, placing his hand over his knee to conceal the rent in his trousers. I haven't. Charlie joined in come along. King Wong. Charlie and Ping Wong whipped up their donkeys, but no sooner had they started than Fred's animal, in spite of its rider's efforts to restrain it, bolted after them, and, overtaking them, ran a dead heat with Lord Roberts. Kruger was last. When, after a little further exploration of the town. They went back to the twilight. They were thoroughly delighted to find that she had finished coaling, and that nearly all traces of that unpleasant job had been removed. They went down to dinner at once, and when they came on deck again they were in the Suez Canal. Fred and Charlie found plenty to interest them in the canal. They saw several thin brown pariah dogs wandering about the desert in search of food, and once a dead camel came floating by them. Towards evening the twilight had to anchor for a time and the three passengers, with the captain's permission, went ashore and gathered flowers and shells to send home. In the Red Sea there was still more to see. All day long the seagulls brown with white breasts hovered around the twilight. Many other birds came and rested on the ship for hours, and, as the weather was intensely hot, Charlie, Fred, and Ping Wong,